Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 123. It's July 3rd, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. It's been another hectic week for me as we come to the end of not only the quarter, but the end of the first half. So in this episode, what I'm going to try and do is address where we're at right now with the S&P 500. And as always, we're not going to look at the market simply in terms of what's happening today. We're going to look at it in terms of overall wealth building principles to use those as a lens where we can look at what's happening in the headlines today, but then at the same time, turn that around and try to make some logical, rational conclusions as to where the market may be headed. I do apologize for not getting you out more episodes this week, but as I say, we're going to try and cover as much ground in as little bit of time as we can today. This is going to be a rapid-fire discussion. I'm going to try and talk about where the market is right now, and then we'll hit all the headlines. Greece, China, Puerto Rico, commodities, oil, U.S. dollar, and we'll try and even talk about the Swiss franc. So here we go. Let's jump right into a market status. Overall, the S&Ps had a very challenging time the last two weeks or so. It did have a slight recovery and try to make up some of the ground from where it had a hard drop on um, June 26th. It's recovered maybe about 25% of that, but it's still off a significant amount from its high on June 23rd. Now remember, we are so close to all-time highs that even though, as you're going to hear me talk about, we're, we're really um, on dangerous ground right around that 100-day and 200-day moving average, but at the same time, we're so close to, to all-time highs that we're really only talking about 2.5% off the all-time high. So when you look at these markets, you have to look at them as either an optimist or a pessimist. On the optimistic side, you can say, hey, we're only 2% off the all-time highs. There's a lot of great things going on. Fuel prices are a lot lower than they were a year ago. Commodity prices continue to be extremely low. That's going to be good for long-term profits on the S&P 500. And so the market can only go up from here. And it's only got to break up, you know, a little bit more than 2.5% to break out and get above resistance uh, to go on to all-time new highs. On the other hand, you can look at the market from a pessimistic standpoint and say, hey, right now the S&P 500 is really flirting with disaster. Sure, it's at its all-time high, but it's really just peaked. This market is starting to roll over, and the way we know that is because the market right now is sitting right in between. It's straddling two critical moving averages, and that's the 100-day the and the 200-day. It's about 1% below the 100-day, and it's about 1% above the 200-day. Now, that's really a strategically bad place to be in from a technical perspective. And that's because this market over the last year and a half or two years has gotten a great deal of support around its 100-day moving average. Usually, it'll hit that 100-day moving average and then bounce up from there. On the rare occasions when it has gotten down below that 100-day moving average and it stayed there for a few sessions, then it's gone on to break down lower. Right now, both the actual index for the S&P 500 are about 1% below that moving average, as well as the, is the five-day moving average, which means, you know, the cumulative price that's rolled up over these last five trading sessions, well, that is below the 100-day moving average. While that's not a good thing, the more important factor, in my opinion, that I've seen in the characteristic of this market over these last couple years is that generally the market can bounce back unless that 10-day moving average also breaks below and goes down below the 100-day moving average. Well, right now, as of close of business yesterday on Thursday, July 2nd, that 10-day moving average is right at and maybe just a little bit below the 100-day moving average. So that's something we want to watch very closely next week. I think if we're going to get a bounce, it will happen next week. Perhaps the S&P 500 will drop all the way back down to its 200-day moving average, which is only about 1%. That's something we saw it do just a, a, just a trading session or two ago. 
and then it'll bounce up from there and go on and, and hit back above the 50-day moving average. For the personality of this market, the ping pong, the, the uh, back and forth peaks and valleys that we've seen in this market, that wouldn't surprise me. But on the other hand, eventually your luck runs out and we are someday going to see this market break down and fall below its 200-day moving average to go on to a 10, 15, or 20% correction. I think we're overdue for something like that, particularly with all the things that are going on in the world markets as well as the uh, getting ready for the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates and then the uh, just natural market on its own bringing up interest rates. For the last couple of weeks, we've seen the 10-year Treasury hovering right around 2.4%. That's historically a very low yield, but at the same time, it's considerably higher than what we've seen over the last 12 months. So regardless of what the Federal Reserve ultimately does, the market is, is for now bringing those interest rates up. That will have an impact on the market because it cuts back on some of the cheap and easy money that corporations have had to spend and have been able to use to do balance sheet engineering on stock buybacks and to make their profits look better than they really are. And then, of course, there's all the other headline news that we're going to talk about here in Rapid Fire that are coming uh, into fruition in this next week or so. So, again, watch it close. Watch that S&P 500. If it breaks down more than 1%, that'll put it below its 200-day moving average. That will also mean that that 10-day moving average is trending down below the 100-day moving average. If the index hits the 200-day moving average, that'll most likely mean that that 10-day moving average is a full 1% below the 100-day moving average. In my opinion, that's something critical. That could mean that we are looking for maybe that 10% correction or so. I have to stress in this podcast, I'm never offering you recommendations or advice. I'm simply talking out loud. I'm telling you what I'm seeing in the marketplace. I'm giving you my opinion. I have no crystal ball. I can't predict the future. I don't have magical algorithms that are guaranteed to tell me what's going to happen in the market. I'm just somebody that's been trading for the last 30 years, and I'm sharing with you a little bit of my lessons and strategies that I've developed to build my wealth over that period of time. So take it for what it's worth. Draw your own conclusions. As we get into the podcast today, I'll tell you a little bit more about what I'm currently invested in. Before we do that, though, I do want to make a couple more comments about the current condition of the S&P 500. Overall, it is behaving very well. And again, it's behaving in that same ping pong tight trading range that we've seen it in all year. Earlier this week, it did get down to that 200-day moving average, but it stayed above it. It has seemed to recover from it. We haven't seen any evidence of very heavy selling from institutional investors or big pension funds or anything like that. The volume seems to be moderate in both directions. On the up days, it's been slightly above average. On the down days, it's been slightly above average there as well, but no extremes in either direction. So that is good news. We don't want to be chicken little here. We don't think things are necessarily falling apart. But this next week is very critical, and then maybe even the week after that, depending upon what happens with these things that are, that are occurring in the headlines. So I think this next week or two is really going to determine and set the pace for what the market is going to look like uh, for these next uh, six weeks or so as we, as we go into July and August and close out the summer. Personally, I think it's going to be very turbulent. If the market does keep trading into a range, I wouldn't be surprised at all the way things are looking and shaping up technically to, is if we saw the 50-day moving average acting as resistance where the market just can't get above, say, uh, right around 2100. And then at the same time, the 200-day acting as support where we don't see the market dropping below, say, 250 or so. It's just somewhere in that range at 2100 on the top, maybe 250 on the bottom. 
that would be very characteristic of this tight trading market we're in where it really goes nowhere but sideways. The other cautionary note I have for the S&P 500 is that it has a lot of distribution days. It has about seven or eight distribution days over the last five weeks. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, basically over the last four or five weeks, we've seen at least seven or eight days where there's been a, a very a high degree of selling and a very sharp drop. These distribution days are events where we've seen the market come down at least about half a percent or more. As I say, there's been probably seven or eight of them over the last just four or five weeks. And some of these pullbacks have been very steep. You'll recall that just four trading sessions ago on Monday, the market, the S&P 500 actually declined over 2%. These are warning signs. These are cautionary. It's something you have to keep in mind as you think through your strategy as to whether it's a good time to buy the dips and get back in the market. Now, obviously, all the turmoil in the market, it's taking place because of the, the uh, headline news. A lot of that has been dedicated to Greece. You're probably sick about hearing about the Greece economy and the potential that it may default or get kicked out of the European Union. Personally, I think this is a, a sideshow. I talked about Greece back in February on episode 86. My thought process and thoughts pretty much remain the same. I think that overall the European Union would be better off um, if they let Greece default and if they go ahead and remove them from the European Union. But even if they stay in, either way, the Greek economy is too small to really make a difference. The problem has always been there, the spread of contagion. That problem was much more significant three or four years ago when private banks owned the majority of that debt. But what has happened over these last three or four years is that government institutions, um, things like the European Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund and other, you know, government and quasi-government type organizations have basically come in and bailed out those banks. They've used quantitative easing type money. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of our Federal Reserve money as well as has come in to rescue them and maybe it's gone in uh, through the back door uh, going in through funding through the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. But the bottom line is, is that the bankers have put a moat around Greece so that that contagion isn't going to spread. There will be bonds uh, that lose money. There will be some banks that lose money, but it's not going to be to the extent that would have occurred three or four years ago to where we could have seen a very big ripple through the economy. The whole Greek situation is being shored up with publicly funded money through these governments or quasi-government organizations, and so that's no longer a risk. They were able to kick the can down the road long enough where private interests have gotten out of it and all the burden is going to fall on the taxpayers. Where I think the contagion still lies is, is with um, the countries like Italy and Spain and Portugal, if they see the Greek people being able to totally be able to uh, default or to get all their debt forgiven and then they don't pay any price for it, then why wouldn't the Spanish people or the Italian people or the Portuguese people do the exact same thing? This is like when you see your neighbor, they stop paying their mortgage, they've lived in the house for two years, the bank doesn't kick them out, it doesn't cost them anything to live there, and yes, they do go bankrupt, their credit rating does take a, uh, a hit for it, but at the same time, they were able to, to keep going on earning their income, they didn't pay anything for housing for two years, and then when they finally do get foreclosed on and kicked out of the house, they have that cash that they've been saving up, and although they can't go and get another loan, they were so far deep in debt, it doesn't matter they wouldn't have qualified for a loan anyways. They get all those past debts wiped out and then they go on with more cash in the bank than what you have. And you know, you look at that and you say, well, why am I breaking my neck trying to pay for my mortgage when my house is underwater? 
I'm just going to quit paying and go bankrupt too and get to live in my house for the next two years for free. That's the contagion that Germany and the European Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund, that's the type of contagion that they're worried about now, where if they let Greece off too easy, they're afraid that these other countries in Southern Europe will try and get out easy as well. Now, I'm talking easy in relative terms. I don't want to see the Greek people suffer. I'm not blaming them for the condition they're in now. It's none of my business. It's none of my concern. I'm just trying to draw some illustrations from you, for you and, and allow you to kind of compare it to what you see in your own environment to understand what's going on on a global scale. And again, you can take that for what it's worth and draw your own conclusions. But this whole thing about Greece defaulting or Greece being in or out of the union, it's more about teaching Greece a lesson than it has anything to do with stability on the euro or stability of, of a, you know, a major country like Germany. Germany will do just fine with or without Greece. So in my opinion, you can forget Greece. It's just something that the news and the talking heads like to talk about, you know, infinitum. The thing that should be on the agenda that no one is really talking about is China. In my opinion, China is the potentially large problem, and it always has been. Chinese market again closed down uh, today. The markets were closed in the U.S., but they were open internationally. The market in China was, a, was down again well over 5.5%. It closed out the week on a downward note. In the last month, it's, been, it's down about 25%. Now, for the year overall, it's still up about 13 or 14 percent, but it has come down significantly in the last three weeks. The reason that's important and why it's so much more important than Greece is that China is the, is the world's second largest economy. When we talk about problems in Greece, we're talking about problems in the hundreds of billions of dollars, maybe 250, maybe, maybe on the outside 300 billion dollars. Now, while that's a lot of money, it's not a significant percentage of the world economy. When we start talking about problems in China, whether it's a uh, collapse of their market or whether it's just a general slowdown in the economy, we're talking about even a slight problem is in the trillions of dollars. In the last three weeks or so, with this um, 25% or, or so pullback in the Shanghai index, you know, the, the, the Chinese stock market, I mean, we're talking about that as bear market correction. That is, that is not a little five or six or even nine percent correction like we've seen in the U.S. in the last, you know, three or four years. We're talking about 25 percent. That is a major correction. Anytime you have a market that, that pulls down more than 20 percent, that's called a bear market. That's what we're seeing occurring in China just over these last three weeks. That means that well over $2 trillion has been pulled out of the Shanghai market. And it isn't just a zero-sum game. You can say, well, yeah, you know, earlier in the year, though, when the market shot up, all that money was made, and now it's just pulled out, and so it's kind of it's breaking even. Well, if you're those millions of Chinese investors that just lost 25% of your investment, you know what they're feeling like. I mean, it's like 2008 to them. And you know what happened in this country in 2008, 2009, all the way basically through 2012, the repercussions of what happened when our market pulled back, you know, around 40%. So right now we've seen the Chinese market just, you know, drop down 25%. There's no indication that it's not going to go farther. Last week we saw the Bank of China come in and try and do more ease. And they came in and tried to encourage banks and large companies to support the stock market and, you know, just uh, basically do balance sheet engineering. That didn't work. We've then seen them come in this week and start to crack down on speculators. And generally when the government, you know, tries to do something and they can't make it work with fiscal policy, then they'll come in and blow 
blame speculators. The next step probably will be they'll start uh, blaming outside foreign interests. They'll blame, you know, large U.S. corporations for, for manipulating something in their market. It's, you know, it escalate from there as the problems in China get worse. Again, I have no idea what's going to happen there. It's just when I look at a chart of their market, I see that a major correction has taken place and I don't see it letting up anytime soon. So that 2.3 or 2.5 trillion dollars that has just vanished in the Chinese economy over the last three or four weeks, that gets pulled out of the overall global economy. That's money that could have been spent somewhere else that, that can now not be spent. That's money that won't be spent on services and products. That's money that won't be spent on financial things like um, buying bonds in the United States or buying equity stocks in Europe. So that's why I'm more concerned about the $2 trillion in China than I am with the $200 billion problems in Greece. I remain concerned about China because of the general slowdown we've seen there. Their official numbers that they're going to be growing around 7%. But that doesn't seem to be happening. That growth may end up being more like 5 or 6%. And that's despite all the money that the government is intervening with in that economy to, to spur things up and to make things better. When you're talking about a country that's the second largest in the world and has an economy of, say, 8 or $9 trillion, any little bit of slowdown, just a 1% slowdown, and you're talking about numbers in that, you know, 80 to $100 billion. So that's significant. If China slows down just one, one and a half, two percent, that has a major impact on the global economy. And that takes us to our next item for rapid fire discussion, which is commodities. We see commodity prices right now at a lower point than they were during the lows of the last Great Recession. Now we're seeing these low commodity prices at the same time that all these global economies are supposedly doing better. The Japanese, the Europeans, the U.S. market, you know, we have all these improvements and yet commodity prices are extremely low. So the question is, is this the canary in the coal mine where commodity prices crashed before the general markets and we're eventually going to see the global markets also fall apart because there's too much malinvestment, there's too much oversupply, and there's just not enough demand to keep up the corporate profits. Or on the other hand, you know, the optimistic side of it, are we going to see the markets go on to make new highs because commodity prices are so low that that's going to allow corporations to continue to make a lot of profits and then anything that's going to occur because of wage inflation or because of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, any of those costs will be offset by these extremely low commodity prices. You know, is that going to offset things? That would be the optimistic side and that would be a reason for why the S&P 500 could bounce off its 200-day moving average and go on to make all-time new highs highs because, you know, oil is 40 or 50 percent less expensive than it was a year or 18 months ago. You know, copper is significantly cheaper. Iron ore is significantly cheaper. The things that you use to make cement and asphalt, they're all extremely cheap. Um, you know, even things like coffee prices are are 50 percent cheaper than they were a year ago. Again, I can't see the future. I can't predict what's going to happen. I don't know if these low commodity prices are an indication that the markets are going to break down or they're an indication that the markets are going to break up. We have to take things one day at a time. We have to look at the price action relationship that takes place not only on the stock markets, but also in the commodities markets. I was very impressed over the last couple weeks about the advances we'd seen happen with agricultural commodities. I actually went in and made some pretty big investments, but I ended up only holding those for, for about two trading days. I won't get into that into this podcast. If you're interested, you can go over to my firm's website, investablewealth.com. 
I did a blog article over there and I show uh, maybe three or four different charts as to what I was thinking and why I pulled out of the market. I was very optimistic though for a time as I saw those agricultural prices breaking out. Things like corn, soybeans, they got up above their 100 day moving average. I pulled out though because I didn't see the corresponding volume that, that would have justified the large amount of investment that I had made in it. I would rather be safe than sorry. Now, when I sold, I only held for a couple days. I made a very small, very tiny profit, uh, but I did get out with all of my money. Over those next three or four trading sessions, those agricultural commodities did go higher, so I could have held on a little longer. However, I did see those taper off. They were down, I believe, Wednesday. They were definitely down on Thursday. Although there has been individual days of above average volume, I never saw a real large breakout where it felt to me that institutional investors were jumping into those to justify my decision. That's why I pulled out. But that's something you're going to watch throughout the summer and going into the fall. Watch those agricultural commodities. Are they going to fall apart and break down below their 100-day moving average, which has been the resistance level for them? And then watch the other more broader basket of commodities as well. Copper, iron ore, those are indications of what's going to be happening with the industrial type products. If you don't get an uptick in something like copper, then how can you assume that on a global basis, things, uh, industries like the construction market or even the electronics markets are growing and improving if copper prices stay depressed and stay at levels that, you know, where they're below where they were in 2008 during the last Great Recession? Those are the leading indicators you want to watch for. In my opinion, they're still very fragile. That takes me on to the next commodity, which is oil. If you've listened to this podcast, you've heard me say for a long time now that I've been short oil. I continue to have a, a position that's short in oil. It's been a highly risky position. It's not something that I invested client money in. It was just something that I pursued on my own. I felt for a long time now that $60 uh, a barrel oil was just too high. Currently, we're down to, I think, somewhere around fifty-five fifty. I think that's much more reasonable. I'm continuing to, to reassess my position. I'll watch it through next week. I don't know where the bottom will be, but I think $50 a barrel oil makes a whole lot more sense than $60 a barrel oil. I would not be surprised to see it you know, even drop down to that $40 a barrel level. However, I would not necessarily hold my short position that long. As I just mentioned, I like to be safe rather than sorry. And so even if I think oil would maybe drop further, if I can make a nice profit when oil's around $55 or $53 a barrel, that's where I'd close out my position. I'd take my profits. I'd be happy with it. Let me talk about oil here for, for a few more minutes. I do want to stress the fact, and again, this is to, to talk about general understanding of trends. And this is something where even if you're listening to this podcast way into the future, Obviously, the price of oil, you know, where it sits on July 3rd of 2015 isn't going to matter to you. But the concept of this podcast isn't to teach you how to make money just today in today's market. What I want to always emphasize for you is to teach you how to think so that you can apply that not only to the stock market, but, you know, also to your own life. So something I want to say about what's, what's going on with oil and why I say I felt it was too expensive at $60 a barrel. The headlines kept coming out and talking about the United States um, surplus and stock of oil, the, the reserves of oil, how they were decreasing, how they'd been coming down over the last eight weeks or so. And once or twice a week, one would get the news that, yes, again, the amount of oil in reserve in these, in these reserves and these tankers and things, you know, it came down another million barrels or whatever. Every time that would happen, the price of oil would go up. 
But what the headlines weren't emphasizing was the other side of that equation. And this is something that that hyped up, you know, earlier in the year, which is what had made oil prices come down so far. And that was the fact that oil reserves were at 80 year high. We have more oil stored in the United States right now than we've had in the past 80 years. So, of course, at some point you're going to get to a peak and then they're going to back off of that. But just because the reserves are coming down a little bit, you're still at an 80-year surplus. You have more oil than you've had in 80 years. That means that there's a whole lot more oil than there is demand. Anytime you have more supply than you have demand, it means that prices come down. And so that's one of the reasons that I was fairly confident that the price of oil was going to come down below $60 a barrel. Now, it's taken a while to get here. But in the last week in particular, they've dropped quite a bit. As I mentioned, they're down around $55.50 as I record this podcast. Another indicator I looked at when I heard the, the press kept hyping the fact that the, the stockpiles of oil were coming down, well, what they weren't really telling you, I mean, it was there in the stories, but you had to dig for it. Uh, and if, particularly if you went to the uh, petroleum website, you could find this information out for yourself. And that's what I encourage people to do. Don't just believe something you read in a press release or because some reporter or some talking head is talking about it on the cable news. Dig down and look at the numbers yourself and make sure what they're telling you makes sense. And one thing that was in the numbers but nobody was really talking about was that, yes, at the same time that the oil reserves were coming down, the the, uh, the inventory of oil was coming down, at that same time, the inventory of gasoline was going up. Now, remember, in our country right now, it's against the law for our oil producers to export oil. That's why there's a difference in price between West Texas Intermediate versus Brent crude oil, which would be more the British or the European standard. West Texas Intermediate for a long time now has been cheaper than Brent crude because we have an oil surplus in this country and it's against the law to export raw oil products. So if you're mobile oil or something like that and you can't export raw oil products, well, no problem. You also own refineries and you convert that oil into gasoline or into some other type of distillant. And in reality, you're happier doing that because think about it. You make more money adding value to the product than you, you do to selling the raw commodity. So anytime you can create that into a distillant, you've added value, your profit margin goes up. Mobile Exxon would much rather export gasoline or some type of a very expensive lubricant product than they would to export raw oil. So don't feel bad for them when we talk about the fact that oil can't be exported. You got to believe that if Mobile Exxon and these other big companies wanted that ban on oil exports to be lifted, they would have lobbied and they'd have bought enough congressmen and senators to make that happen. So they're probably happy with the way it is. It allows them, the big companies that are vertically integrated, uh, to take advantage of selling these higher value products, while at the same time, the small wildcatters that maybe are involved in shale oil production, all they can do is produce oil, and so they're stuck selling in the United States. The big companies always win. That's the way it always has been. That's the way it always will be. But back to the inventories of gasoline. So at the same time, oil inventories are decreasing, gasoline prices are increasing. That meant that refineries were buying up the oil that was drawing down the, the uh, inventories, and then they turned that into gas and other distillants, diesel fuel, things like that, high-priced lubricants. And although they were trying to sell those and trying to export them, they were building up at a faster rate than they could sell them. So again, that told me that most likely oil prices were going to fall down below $60 a barrel. 
We'll get off of oil. There's just one more thing I want to mention, and this is one other reason why I believe that oil is going to drop lower. And I want to stress here is that I can't see the future. I, I, I put my money where my mouth is. I'm shorting oil. I'm making profits on that. I don't know how or when I'll close out my position. I look at it every day and I decide the risk reward. Have I made enough money that I'm happy to walk away with this and, and take my profit? Or do I want to stay in a little bit longer and try and make more money? I have to evaluate that on a daily basis, not only with oil, but with all my investments. But one final reason why I think that oil prices maybe have further to drop, and that's because of what we saw happen this week with the, with the big companies, and I'll talk about ExxonMobil uh, to, to draw the illustration. Back in March, when we saw oil hit its lowest point, I believe that ExxonMobil's uh, low price at that time was somewhere around $83.50, somewhere in that ballpark. And that's about the lowest it had been for, you know, going back maybe uh, two and a half, three years, you know, sometime maybe into, into 2012. Obviously, coming out of the recession, ExxonMobil had dropped. And from 2009, it started going up and peaked out in 2014. But, but that price that we saw in March, it was about as low as it had been for the last, say, year and a half or two years. Well, just this week, we've seen the price of ExxonMobil drop down to right around $83. So that's lower than where it was when oil was at its lowest point in March. And that puts the price for ExxonMobil Exxon back to where it was, you know, again, sometime in the 2000, um, maybe late 2011, early 2012 price range. If the really smart people that are tracking oil reserves and where the price of oil were going, if they're starting to now give up on ExxonMobil, that leads me to believe that oil has further to drop. Take that for what it's worth. Draw your own conclusions. But for these coming days and weeks, if you want to know where oil head is headed, I would watch ExxonMobil. That's what I'll be doing, and that'll be part of the things that I use to for me to decide whether I hold my short position or whether I take my profits and close it out. Next rapid-fire uh, le level of discussion here. I want to talk about Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has come out. They, they're saying that they can't manage their debts. They're going to have to possibly default. Government officials seem to be supporting that. Uh, we're not seeing someone come in and trying to... Uh, you know, support a, a government bailout here. In my opinion, this is more impactful to our stock market and could be the reason why we're seeing the pullbacks in our stock market more so than what we're seeing take place in Greece. Now, again, Puerto Rico is a small marketplace. It's not going to mean economic collapse, but what it does tell the bond market is that there's risk out there. We've seen Stockton, California default. We've seen Detroit default. Now we're possibly going to be seeing Puerto Rico default. Bond investors, in particular um, uh, small government, municipal-type bond investors, they need to be conscious of the fact that a lot of these governments and municipalities and states, they've built up a lot of debt. It's well beyond their ability to service that debt, and these, these uh, state entities are going to go bankrupt. Perhaps no one is going to step in and bail them out, and the bond investors are going to take losses. That should put some fear into the bond market which would consequently mean that they would want to have a higher yield to invest their money. So bond yields would again be going up. And since bond prices are inversely related to bond yields, uh, if you're in corporate bonds or municipal bonds, or even if you're in government treasuries, be cautious about that. As we see interest rates rise, that means that you can lose money on your principal and bond funds. 
You're never told that. We haven't really heard that for the last 30 years because bond prices have gone up as bond yields have gone down. Uh, in your work 401k plan, you're constantly being told that you, as you get older and closer to retirement, you should move more of your money into bonds. Uh, you're told that that's less risky. Well, that's just not true. Bonds can be just as volatile as the stock market. It's like anything else. It's all about risk reward and it's about supply and demand. If you have your money invested in bond funds, um, if you're in one of those target date retirement funds that because of your age is heavily swayed towards bonds, make sure you check your statement this quarter. I would assume that you're losing money there. I say that because right now I'm looking at the return on a typical 20-year treasury bond fund. The one I'm looking at is Barclays, but they should all be tracking about the same amount. You know, again, you're conditioned, you're taught to believe that if you're investing in bonds, it's a safe investment. Well, if you have had money in a 20-year bond fund, year-to-date, you've lost close to 8% of your money. So be conscious of that. Watch out for that. The fact that Puerto Rico may default, again, that's going to have more of an impact on the bond market, the municipal bond market, even the stock market, than I think Greece is going to have. Last two items I want to talk about are currency. A week or so ago, I initiated a position in the U.S. dollar. I took a pretty big position, not only with my own money, but also with client money. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of dedicating 50% of our portfolio to the U.S. dollar. Now, the reason I did that is because um, I continue to be worried about the United States stock market as well as the other global stock markets. Uh, and again, whether this is all related to just Greece drama or problems in China, um, it doesn't really matter to me why. It's just that when I look at the markets, I see a lot of turbulence. I've preferred over these last six to eight weeks to be mostly in a cash position. I decided to take a substantial part of our, part of our portfolio and move that into the U.S. dollar because I think the risk-reward uh, ratio there uh, for sure for these recent weeks and maybe even uh, closing out through the end of the year to be much more favorable than it, than it has a downside. Again, I'm just talking out loud here. I'm, I'm answering some listener questions that I received. I'm trying to give you an idea of where my thoughts are and where I'm investing my money because I'm concerned with the uh, the outlook of the U.S. stock market. I'm not offering you any recommendations or any advice. You can simply listen to what I say and draw your own conclusions. As I look at the stock market, though, as I mentioned before, we're about 2.5% off of all-time highs. We see the S&P 500 straddling between two critical moving averages. We see them about 1% below the 100-day moving average, about 1% above the 200-day moving average. It could break up or down either way, you know, flip a coin. But what I do see is when I look at the S&P 500 and I look at earnings, I look at uh, projected forecasts for earnings in the economy, it looks to me like over the next six months, at best, we're going to see a total return from the S&P 500 of no more than, say, 5 or 6%. And again, that's not an opinion. That, that's simply based on forecast of earnings. Remember, the price of a stock or the price of an index, it always comes down to earnings expectations. And based on where we think earnings are going to be in December of 2015, it looks that the, the you know probable increase of where the market closed in December of 2014, that we're not going to see more than, say, 6% return. Well, right now, the S&P year-to-date is probably, uh, it's up less than 1%. I think it's up something like maybe 90 basis points. So at best, I think you're looking at the markets. You know, even if it does recover, it's going to go on maybe 5% above where it's at right now. Now, 5% return 
is good money, particularly if you factor in dividends and then you factor in the fact that a 10-year treasury is only going to net you about 2.4%. Certainly a 5% return in the stock market is nothing to turn your nose up at. However, at the other hand, I want you to think about risk reward. What's the downside over the next six months? Well, we've, we've seen this market trading in a tight zone, but we've also seen that when the bottom falls out of it, it does fall quickly and precipitously. We've seen that this market hasn't really had a major pullback since 2011. That's not normal for an economy, particularly when there's all these problems going on. Uh, we think the Federal Reserve may be raising interest rates. That would mean generally headwinds for further uh, profits and earnings on the S&P 500, at least in the short term. The strong U.S. dollar has been one of the reasons we've seen a slowdown in earnings in the S&P 500. So these are all things that are weighing on it. And the way I look at the market, I see, yes, perhaps it could have a 5% upside between now and December. But on the other hand, it could easily pull back 10, 15, 20%. To me, that's not a good risk reward strategy. That's why over these last six to eight weeks, I've remained mostly in cash, waiting to see if we did get a pullback. While we've seen a slight pullback now, I don't think it's over yet. And that's why I've moved a good bit of my money over to the United States dollar. I think that because of all the quantitative easing that we're seeing by the European Central Bank, by the Chinese, by the Japanese, even by the Swiss National Bank, they're, they're printing as well, trying to keep their Swiss franc depressed. I think that all bodes well for the U.S. dollar. I think the dollar has a, a very limited downside. Maybe it could uh, draw back uh, to a level of support of maybe around 2%. On the upside side of it, though, I think it, it could appreciate maybe 5 to 15%. Now, this is always subject to what happens with our own Federal Reserve. I have no idea what Janet Yellen or the other members or governors of the Federal Reserve Board are going to do if they decide to drastically start printing more money, to start QE4, to take the $4.5 trillion that they have in their war chest now and start uh, manipulating that into the economy, then yes, the United States dollar could uh, be depressed. It could fall down more. And so that would cause me to change my position. But for right now, the way I look at the next five or six months, I think that the U.S. dollar has a downside, maybe 2-3%. I think it has an upside of 5 to 15%. That's a better risk-reward ratio than I see in the S&P 500. And so consequently, that's why I've dedicated a pretty large chunk of my portfolio into the United States dollar. Now, I'm going to continue to watch commodity prices like we talked about. I'm going to look for a breakout there, or I'm going to look consequently for a breakdown. I'm going to be watching the S&P 500 and select elements within the United States stock market. And I'm going to decide what I do with that other 50% of my portfolio that's currently in cash. And I'll keep watching the United States dollar, how it performs against a basket of other currencies to determine how long I hold that position. But for right now, that's my strategy. That's what I'm going into these uh, remaining summer months with. I think it's the safest place with the best return. But as I do with every investment, I monitor it daily. I don't get wetted down to a particular theory or strategy. If things change by next Tuesday, you'll hear me come on a podcast or put out a blog notice saying, hey, I changed my mind. I think conditions changed or I've interpreted this differently and I've sold my position. I've moved on. Over my 30 years of investing, that's how I've learned to build my wealth, to not get stuck on one position because I think it's right. I don't try and argue with the market. I try and learn from the market and, and move along with momentum. Right now, I think the U.S. dollar has more momentum than the S&P 500. 
Last thing I want to touch on, the Swiss franc. You heard me just mention that the uh, Swiss National Bank is again trying to devaluate the value of the franc. Um, if you go back and listen to past episodes, you'll hear earlier in the year, I had a long position in the franc. I uh, you know, took some profits on that, sold it a long time ago. It did go up from there, though. The reason I sold it was because I was seeing that the Swiss National Bank was intervening. They were trying to devalue the value of the Swiss franc so that their export market could do better. But there's been such a great demand for the Swiss franc that they just can't keep up with that. Year to date, the franc is up over 5.5%. It did pull back uh, a week or so ago, again, because of the Swiss National Bank intervening, trying to devalue it. But it's recovered from that. It just seems like the momentum is so strong where people value the Swiss franc. They see it as a safe harbor. They see it as a safe place as we have, have all this turmoil going on and all this money printing in Europe. So investors are piling into the Swiss franc and it doesn't seem like the Swiss National Bank can stop that upward momentum. Now, that's not something that I think would happen with the United States government. Our Federal Reserve is more than capable of totally wiping out and devaluating our currency. That's what we saw happen uh, basically for the last 15 years. It was only last year that it started recovering. And a lot of that had more to do with the money printing of other nations than it had to do with our own restraint. But it looks right now, and again, this is just my opinion, but it looks like that the Swiss National Bank is just not going to be able to stop the momentum and hold the Swiss franc down low enough unless they just go in and wreck the entire Swiss economy. It would be hard for me to believe that they would do that, but, you know, we're dealing with central bankers here, and who knows what's on their mind. Back in 2011, when we saw uh, the, the U.S., you know, conditions starting to improve, but a lot of things falling apart in Europe, we saw the, the Swiss franc then get up to, I believe, its highest level at all time. That's somewhere in the neighborhood of close to 20% higher than it is right now. So we're back to looking at things from a risk-reward strategy. If you look at where the Swiss franc has support, it probably has support somewhere around 10% below where it is. It could appreciate maybe 15 to 20 percent, depending upon how bad things get in Europe. So if you're a gambler, um, you might want to look at that as a position. Right now, I'm not taking that with my own money, nor you know, with client money. So I'm just throwing that out there as an idea. You have to remember that you are fighting against the Swiss National Bank. But I wouldn't be at all surprised to see maybe some more upside of that Swiss franc and possibly in the coming days and weeks, you may see me take a small position in that. If I do, I'll obviously let you know through either the podcast or the blog post over at investablewealth.com. So if you want to make sure that you do stay current with my most current thoughts on the economy and what's going on, chances are you'll hear it first with a blog post over at investablewealth.com. If that's of interest to you, go over and sign up for the free email notices. As always, until our next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.